I want to start out by talking about a movie we saw just on Friday, Big Hero 6. We got, we got grandparents in town. Kids wanted to see it. And if you've seen the previews, has anybody seen the actual movie? I will not spoil the end, I promise. It's the movie with that big inflatable white guy. Uh, rub, rubber guy, the, the kid tries to cram him into a metal his belly pops out, kind of like mine does after a Super Bowl party. And he tries to push it back in there. You've, have you seen the previews? Okay, well, this, huh? Yeah, it looks like the Michelin Man, exactly. Good, good, good comparison. This guy had a computer chip in him. He was a robot named Baymax. And the guy that had created him put in a computer chip that defined his identity. The, the computer chip that he inserted into him when he was created was for him to be a medical healer. Uh, he would be able to scan a human, find out what was wrong with him or her, and then apply the necessary medical treatment. That was his intended identity. But later on in the movie, another guy makes another chip that has this skull and crossbones on it. <laughs> and he shoves that in there alongside the other chip. And this, this chip is designed to make him into someone who destroys. And throughout the movie, you see this conflict between the two identities. The identity that was given to him by his creator and the identity that was given to him by this other guy. And I thought about that, having... Uh, two chips that define his identity is something that maybe we can relate to being children of God in a world that often pulls us in other directions. You see, if you've trusted in Jesus, God gives you a new identity. You are a new creation. And God says we are to be defined by that chip, if you will, that Holy Spirit who he puts inside of us. But the world says, no, you're not defined by who God says you are. You're defined maybe by your successes. That's what makes you valuable because you had this victory and that victory because you climbed this corporate ladder or did this or you're liked by all these people. Or you're defined by your failures. You're not worth anything because you're not like that person or you couldn't, couldn't do that or couldn't do this. And, and these two identities are in conflict with each other. This morning, what I want to do as we look at the life of Jesus, I want to talk about identity and the importance of us coming back to defining our identity as God defines us. You may be here and say, I don't know what that looks like because I haven't yet met this God through Jesus Christ. Well, maybe this will encourage you in that direction. We're going to look at Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4. And you remember as we go in here, we're not doing the whole chapters, by the way, <laughs> As we go in here, you remember Luke had told us at the beginning of his book that he wrote that we might be certain, certain of the things we've been taught. And in this passage, he wants us to be certain about two things about Jesus and his identity, that he is the son of God, fully God, and he is the son of man, fully man. And as we unpack that, we're going to look at what that meant for Jesus as he lived here. And what that means for you and I as we grab onto our identity in Christ. And I pray that we'll walk out of here encouraged and empowered by what we read. First, we're going to read about the baptism of Jesus Christ. You remember last week we met John the Baptist? This week, after all the people have been baptized, 
comes to the climax of, of John's ministry. It says, verse 21 in chapter 3, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now, what kind of baptism was John doing? You remember? Of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So the first thing we got to look at is, all right, why is Jesus doing this? Obviously, if you know your Bible, Jesus was without sin. He was doing it to identify with us, just as everything else he did as a human was to walk in our shoes. Just as he became a man, just as he later went to the cross in our place. Here he's identifying with us. And it's interesting, as he was baptized, Luke brings out that he was praying. It says, as he was praying, heaven was opened. I believe Luke's the only gospel author that mentions that Jesus was praying at this moment. You remember, Luke goes out of his way to show us not only was Jesus the Son of God, he was the Son of Man. And as a Son of Man, he needed to re remain in constant contact with his Father. So we see him praying over and over again, and we see God answer. Heaven was open. Could you imagine being there that day? All these people on the shores of the Jordan River. This man walks out to John, and as he's being baptized, he prayed, and heaven literally opens up. What a powerful moment. Verse 22 says, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Luke's the only one that says in bodily form. This is important because if he's in bodily form like a dove, you know what that means? They can all see what's going on. There was a time in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit hovered. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He was hovering over the waters at the beginning of creation, and here you seeing, see him hovering over Jesus as he comes to bring a new creation. Beautiful connection that God makes for us. Jesus, as the Son of Man, walked in the power of the Spirit, as our example. As we walk this earth, we must walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. This was important for John. Re listen to what uh, John the Baptist says in John 1 verse 32. It won't be up here. This is interesting. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. That Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus was what told John, this is the one. Now, at first I read that, I'm like, you guys were cousins. How do you not know this? But then I thought about Duck Dynasty. You ever see those pictures of the guys before they had beards and after they had beards? They look totally different. And maybe, maybe just John the Baptist and Jesus hung out as kids, and John left for the wilderness, and he never saw his cousin with a beard. He needed the confirmation. This, this, yeah, this is your cousin. This is the one I told you about. I don't know. It was important for John, though, to know that this was the one. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man you've been waiting for. You remember, John didn't even want to baptize him once he found that out. He's like, you should be baptizing me 
But Jesus said it's necessary for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. This is the Father's will, just as everything that it's going to set in motion is the Father's will, for me to go out and begin my public ministry, which will lead to the cross and a resurrection, which will bring salvation to all who will believe in me. It's important for John, this Holy Spirit. It's important for Jesus. It's not like the Holy Spirit, he hadn't had the Holy Spirit in him before this. We know that earlier in Luke, it it tells us that, that John was filled with the Spirit even at birth. So if John was filled with the Spirit, we can assume the same for Jesus. But it's this important moment of commissioning for Jesus' ministry. He's about to go out and do his public ministry. We need to know when we go out that we go out in the power of the Spirit. There's a lot of parallels between Luke and Acts. As we look at the earthly life of Christ, Acts looks at the body of Christ. And we can see the the comparison. Acts 1.8, Jesus says to the early church, the body of this same Christ, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you'll go out and be my witnesses. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in His power as we go out. Romans 8.1 tells us, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If we're going to minister in freedom and power, we've got to do it relying on the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus did. Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. I think the Holy Spirit's important for the job God's given us. Essential. We also see in this passage something that's very hard for those who don't believe in a trinity to explain. Because you see all three of them show up in the same moment. Listen to this. I, I read this quote this week in King's Cross by Tim Keller. He said, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a a kind of dance. And what he's talking about is this ongoing relationship from eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is and always has been a relational God. The, The members of the Trinity love each other. One other guy, Cornelius Plantinga, described it like this. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. That's beautiful. And we're going to come back to that metaphor of it as a dance in a little bit, so hold on to that. Here, we come to a key point in this message. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. Now he's about to hear from his father. I don't know if he heard from his father before this moment or not in this kind of dramatic fashion, but this is so huge at the beginning of his ministry. A voice came from heaven and said, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Can you imagine the music to his ears that that was for Jesus? To hear his father. You're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He identified with us in the baptism, son of man. Here he's clearly hearing 
He's also the Son of God. It's important that we know that in our identity in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God as well. This is right before he begins his ministry, and this is a key point I want to hammer on a little bit. We don't go out and do things for God to somehow gain his favor. We do things for God because we know in Christ he is pleased with us. And out of that security, we're then able to offer something to the world in the power of the Spirit. As long as you're wrestling with, does God love me? Does God accept me? Does God value me? You won't have anything to offer the world because they'll see we're just as insecure and unsettled as they are. It's only when we rest and, hey, I believed in Jesus and Jesus is well-pleasing to the Father. Now I can go out. Now I can offer something to these folks around me in the power of the Spirit. Verse 23 says, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. This is cool. This is cool because the priests in the Old Testament, Book of Numbers tells us they would officially begin at the age of 30. Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry at the age of 30. King David became king at the age of 30. This is like a key age in the Bible. So in the baptism, we see his identity verbally affirmed. Next, we're going to look at a genealogy where we're going to see that his identity was also historically affirmed. And we're not going to read all 70-some names in this genealogy. If you want to read that later, I'd encourage you to. But it begins, it says, He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And I'm just going to pull out a few key names in this genealogy that drive home some very important things about Jesus that we need to know, as Luke said, so we can be certain. David is a very important name in this genealogy. He was the king of Israel, greatest king they ever had. You remember God had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. Your throne will be established forever. Who's that going to be fulfilled through? Jesus Christ. That's a key name in there. Judah, the son of Jacob, is in this genealogy. You know what Genesis 49, 10 says? Jacob was blessing all of his sons. And he says to Judah, the scepter, that's something a ruler holds on to, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Jesus. Abraham's in this genealogy. Genesis 12, 3, God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and ever, whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Guess what? That happens through Jesus. Two more important names. Adam. Matthew's genealogy didn't go back to Adam. Matthew stopped at Abraham because he was showing that Jesus was the Jewish king. Luke wants us to see that Jesus came for all humanity. That he is the son of man who came to seek and save what was lost. So he goes all the way back to Adam. You remember after they sinned, Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He was saying that to the serpent. Her offspring will crush your head. Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls him the last Adam. It says, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Romans 5.19, listen to this, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam brought victory. Romans 5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, 
the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. And then do you notice how the genealogy closes? Son of God. You see the summary of who he is in those last two phrases. Son of Adam, son of man, son of God. His identity is affirmed historically. And now we get into a battle where his identity is going to be attacked, assaulted, and tested. And we're going to see what we can learn from this. The very next verse says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Who is he led by into the desert where this temptation would happen? Yeah. Does God sometimes lead us into situations where we will be tested? The Bible says God does not tempt us. He does not tempt us. But there are tests in our life. And here it says, for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. I like the way Philip Yancey describes this. Like single combat warriors, two giants of the cosmos converged on a scene of desolation. One, just beginning his mission in enemy territory, arrived in badly weakened state. He's talking about Jesus' human condition in this moment. He had been fasting for 40 days. We learn later that he's hungry. He's not weak spiritually, but physically speaking. The other, Satan, confident and on home turf, seized the initiative. He was led into the desert alone, except for his father and the power of the Spirit. Martin Luther said this, Eve got into trouble when she walked in the garden alone. I have my worst temptations when I'm by myself. How many of you know that's true? So when we get away from fellowship, get away from hanging out with other believers that encourage us when we're alone, that those temptations come the hardest. Interesting parallels here. Israel was in the wilderness how many years? 40 years. And how'd they do with the temptations that came their way? (laughs) Failed. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. We're going to see, as you know, he gets the victory. But there's three temptations here. And we're going to look at them and look at the heart of them. On on the surface level, some of them are kind of confusing. What's the big deal, really, about making bread? Come on. You know, even the second one, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Hey, this is the Messiah. I mean, what else would you expect of him? But we're going to pull them apart and see what the underlying issues were. Because Satan is a subtle tempter. He likes to inject the confusion, right? I think it makes sense that when we look at his temptations here, we're a little confused because that's where he works best. It's not always in the obvious things. It's in the subtle things. Temptation one, I believe you could sum up as, Jesus, take things into your own hands instead of trusting your Father. Let's look at it. Verse one of chapter four. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them... He was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. You see what he's doing? He's going right after the very thing his father had just told him. You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Isn't that what he did in the garden? Did God really say? He loves to create doubt about what God has said to us. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Listen to this quote. I think it sums up the heart of this. Human welfare does not depend primarily on food or even physical provisions. It depends mainly on obedience to God's will, even though that may mean physical deprivation. Now, later on, Jesus would multiply bread and fish for folks, right? But why did he do it? He did it to care for those people, right? To care for those folks that were hungry, to, to minister to them. He didn't have any insecurity about who he was, but here's Satan saying, hey, I'm not going to believe who you are unless you do this. And Jesus is secure in what his father said. He doesn't need to do this to make himself satisfied that he is who God says he is. Take things into your own hands instead of trusting your father. You remember the end of the phrase, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father. All three of Jesus' scriptural replies come from Deuteronomy, which was when Israel was where? In the wilderness. It fits. He knows what he, where he needs to go. Take things into your own hands instead of trusting your Father. I heard a modern day example of this just before service. There's a gal whose hours got cut at her workplace. And she was counseled to call in and, and try to make some things happen, try to, try to take control of the situation. And in some situations, that may not necessarily be bad counsel. Sometimes you need to take some proactive steps. But as she prayed about it, she said, that's not how God's leading me. I, I feel I need to just let this sit, and I'm going to pray on it. And she did. She didn't call the boss. She didn't storm into the office and say anything. She prayed. And within a couple of weeks, she got a call from the company saying, not only are we going to increase your hours, we want to train you to be a manager. In that situation, the Holy Spirit was leading her, wait, pray, and trust in God's timing. And God took care of her. Jesus had that same kind of trust in his Father and his Word. The second one, you could sum up as, Get your kingdom without a cross. Jesus, get your kingdom without a cross. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Now some of us read that and say, what right does Satan have to say that? But you know what? Jesus calls him in other places the prince of this world. In other words, because we blew it in the garden, he does have some jurisdiction down here for a time. He's saying to Jesus, hey, you can have all this right now. Right now, if you worship me, it'll all be yours. <laughs> like we said earlier, it makes sense for a Messiah to have the kingdoms of the world, right? But what was the condition? If you worship me. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Back to Deuteronomy. 
does that tell us? It tells us that the end does not justify the means. And it tells us that, listen, as Warren Wiersbe says, God's pattern is to start with suffering and end with glory. While Satan's pattern is to start with glory and end with suffering. Satan wants us to sacrifice the eternal for the temporary and take the easy way. Jesus knew his father would give him those kingdoms. It had been prophesied in Psalms. And besides that, for all eternity, they're talking about the plan. (laughs) They know it. And the plan was not to go straight to the kingdom. Luke 24, 26, Jesus said, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? It would come up again later. You remember he told the disciples about the suffering that was to come and said, Peter, ne- Peter said, never, Lord. You remember what Jesus said? Yeah, it came up again on the cross as people walked by and said, come down, save yourself. Save yourself. But I like this quote, for Jesus to save others, he could not save himself. 1 Peter 5.10 says, The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Luke 9, he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Get your kingdom without a cross. And all of a sudden you think of all the situations in life where you're tempted to take a sinful shortcut. And one of the areas I feel boldly about today and I see way too much of it, I see it in marriage. I see people saying, right now I've got conflict in my marriage. And you know what? I deserve happiness. I deserve peace. I deserve this and I deserve that. So I am out of here. And they go find someone else. That's not God's plan in most situations. In most situations, his plan is, hey, you work through it. You love each other through the pain, through the ups and the downs. And then you experience something greater than you ever would if you gave up. You don't get your kingdom without a cross. That's just one example. You can think of other ways we're tempted for that in our lives. The third temptation. Choose instant fame over love for the world. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and the devil's going to quote the Bible, which he does sometimes. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, this is a a strategic temptation because there were some rabbis going around saying that, hey, when the Messiah comes, he's going to appear on the peak of the temple. That's where he's going to show up. So the devil knows that. He plays on it. 
And he's trying to get Jesus to choose instant fame over love for the world. Because you know what? If, if Jesus had received all the notoriety right here, he never would have continued on his path to the cross. And the temptation here is to make life all about himself. Forget those people that need salvation. Make it about you. Forget your father's will. And you remember the dance metaphor earlier. Forget the dance with your father and the Holy Spirit. Just make it all about you. Keller said, can you imagine 100 people on a stage? If you were to put 100 people up on that stage and all of the people were saying, hey, I'm not moving. You all dance around me. What would happen to the dance? (laughs) That's the end of the dance. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Jesus lived that out here. He loved the world so much. He would not settle for this instant fame. He said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now think about that in our lives. It's not necessarily wrong to be well known by many people. But I guarantee you, if that's your number one goal in your life, you're going to stamp down on everyone around you. On a family level, if, if all you care about is being the top dog, you're going to crush your family along the way. If all you care about is always being right, you're going to crush your family along the way. If you're going to do that in your career world, where that's your number one goal, you're going to treat your fellow employees like garbage to get there. Jesus did not choose the fame, the high position over love for the world. He knew that would come in God's time. Verse 13 says, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Andrew Bonar says this. He says, Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. You see, this was not the end of the temptation for Jesus. The enemy came back. So we ought to be watchful as Jesus was. He succeeded where the first Adam failed. And you remember the first Adam The scenario was perfect, right? Garden, everything I need, fellowship with God, and he blew it. Here you see the second Adam in a desert after 40 days of fasting, winning the fight in the power of the Spirit, trusting what his father had said about him. You know what? Wearsby points out that we've got the same weapons in our back pocket if we're children of God. He had prayer. He just prayed to his father. He had the father's love that was expressed in that you're my son whom I, I, whom I love. The spirit, the word of God. Matthew tells us that angels ministered to him after this temptation. You know what Hebrews 1.14 says? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I believe there may even be times when angels come to strengthen us in and after a fight against the enemy. Maybe even more powerful is what Hebrews 4 says. Maybe you're in the middle of a temptation today. It's been raging. And you're thinking about caving. Listen to what Hebrews 4 says. Verse 14. Since we have a great high priest 
who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. He knows the battle because he's been there. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He's been there. He's won the fight. When we need the help, we can turn to him. And I look at these three temptations. How easy would it be to find your identity in any of those? The first one, I'm going to prove myself by what I do. The second one, I'm going to find my identity in a comfortable life. I'm going to get the kingdom right now. The, the third one, I'm going to find my identity in fame. Why did Jesus not go for those? As the perfect son of God, obviously he cannot sin. But I believe as the perfect son of man, it's because he knew where his identity came from. It came from what his father said about him. Not what Satan brought at him, not what the world thought, but what his father thought about him. I think about that for us today. Where do we find our identity? Because as he found his identity in the Father, if we trusted in Jesus, we find our identity in him. We find our identity in him. I want to ask you a few questions that Carolyn shared with me that I think are good to meditate on as we close this. Where is my identity found? What would it look like to find my identity this morning in Christ? Am I willing to let him write his story in my life? How do I recognize what I'm currently finding my identity in? Are there distractions which pull me away from my identity? What are they? Is busyness distracting me? Listen, I want you to to close your eyes and think on this. Here's some of your identity in Christ if you've come to him. I want this to wash over you this morning. I want you to go out knowing who you are. First, you're you're a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You're reconciled in Christ. Your message is now reconciliation and freedom. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You're righteous and holy in Christ. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You're born again by the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You're saved by grace as a gift, not because of your performance. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. You radiate his life. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You're the salt of the earth. You're a victor and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. You have a heavenly calling. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. You have royalty in you. You are a chosen 
people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Three more. You're designed for good works. You're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You're called to produce fruit. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You're a co-heir with Christ. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share with his glory. Father, I thank you so much for this passage in your word. Thank you for leading Luke through your spirit to write these words so that we might be certain of who Jesus is, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And Lord, as we look at your word and realize that our identity is in Christ, let that wash over us this morning. Some of us came in here this morning defined by that second chip that the world has attempted to put in us. Defined by that low moment in my life, defined by that failure, or defined by that success. Some of us need to take that chip out with your help and, and receive the truth that we've been taught from your word this morning. We are defined in Christ. If you're here this morning and you say, man, I want to know what that's like. I'd encourage you to take an honest look and ask yourself, do I, do I believe in that Christ that we read about today, the Son of God, Son of Man, who lived the perfect life I couldn't? Am I willing to put my trust in what he did on the cross with my sins upon him to pay for my sin? To say, Jesus, I can't do it. I've been defined too long by what this world says. I want to be defined in you. I believe that you died and that you rose again. I turn from whatever else I'm putting my trust in, my ways. I turn to you. If that's you this morning, I'd love to talk with you. I know there are others in this room that would as well. Father, help us to walk out of here with a clear sense of our identity so that we might be a blessing to those around us, that we might be a blessing to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.